And so as we open your word this morning, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts, that we not grow cold, and that you'd apply it to our feet. That we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, hopefully you have noticed that I pray that tail end prayer before every single sermon. Lord, take your word and apply it to our minds that we not grow shallow, apply it to our hearts that we not grow cold, apply it to our feet that we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. And really, this is just a prayer for faithfulness. Because being faithful to God doesn't involve just parts of ourselves. It involves our whole selves, our minds and our hearts and our feet. We could add our hands and our mouths and our lungs if we so desire. But the point of the prayer is that we wouldn't just be formed in part, but in whole. That we wouldn't just lock away our faith in part of our lives, but allow it to holistically form every moment of our lives. And as a people whose knowledge often exceeds our obedience. It's a prayer that we know we need to put what we know into practice. We need to take what we're learning and actually live it out because so often what we know exceeds what we do. You need to know that I didn't come up with this prayer on my own. Uh, my friend and mentor Isaac Hunter used to pray this prayer before his sermons. And the first time I heard it was 2006. And I immediately thought, I want to pray that prayer. And so I started to pray that prayer. And I have continued to pray that prayer. And I've prayed that prayer before every single sermon I've ever preached. Uh, and Isaac, he's since died, and he's now with the Lord. And so this prayer is a way that I keep his memory alive and his influence alive. And so it, it serves kind of two things for me. It's a prayer that I want to see in our community, but it's also a prayer that keeps me rooted in the story that God has written in my life and the leaders that have had an impact on me. And Isaac uh, used to love the show Friday Night Lights. Has any of you ever watched Friday Night Lights? And in our uh, office space at Summit Church, he had plastered the mantra from the team on the stairwell. And it, it's, you know, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Don't you love that? Don't you want to live by that? Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. But the more honest version is probably something like, Cloudy eyes, fickle hearts, can't know for certain how things will go. You see, I think we need to pray, Lord, take your word and apply it to our minds and our hearts and our feet. Because so often our minds and our hearts and our feet take us to places we didn't expect to go. And the problem is that our minds can grow shallow and our hearts do grow cold and our feet do get stuck. And so this morning, I want to hit pause on our series in the Sermon on the Mount to consider this prayer that I pray before every sermon. And to do this, we're going to look at this somewhat intense passage from Ezekiel chapter 33. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Ezekiel 33. We'll start in verse 30. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Everything will be on the screen behind me. Here's what the prophet Ezekiel says. As for you, son of man... Sorry, this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, to be clear. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. See, this passage is a scene where God is speaking to his prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was a faithful prophet in the midst of a generation that was anything but faithful. 
And so God speaks to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel, in turn, speaks the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. And he's continually, throughout his book, calling them back to the Lord, calling them back to faithfulness. And now he's more than halfway through his public ministry, and a crazy thing starts to happen. People start to show up and listen to him. They actually start to take notice of him. They actually start to say to one another, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. When you hear that phrase, the word, what do you think of? The word. You think of the Bible, right? This is true, but it's actually not the full answer. Throughout the Bible, the word describes a few things. The word of the Lord is most commonly a message from God through someone for his people. The word of the Lord. It is God speaking. And in turn, what God has spoken gets written down. And we see this throughout the scriptures. Moses writes down the laws of God. David writes down God-inspired prayers. Jeremiah has a disciple who writes down his prophecies. Luke writes a gospel and a history of the church. Paul and James and John write letters. And I could go on, but you get the point. People are hearing from the Lord and it gets written down. And so the Bible, which we often call the word, is actually the written word. There's the living word, and it's recorded in the written word. You see, Jesus himself is the word. And John, in his gospel, tells us that the word became flesh, and the word of God became one of us, which means if you really want to hear God speak, you need to hear him speak through the person of Jesus. That is the purest word of the Lord that you will ever hear. And Jesus himself taught that everything throughout Scripture is actually about him. Once you know him, you can go back and reread it in light of him. You can see it pulling toward him all of the word of the Lord that has been written down was so that we could see it most clearly in him. And so when we pray, Lord, take your word and apply it, we're actually declaring something. We're declaring that the Bible is so much more than ink on a page. It is a way in which we open ourselves up to the living word who by his spirit can engage our hearts and change them so that we are actually transformed. We're saying that God has breathed life into these words and in these words we actually can encounter Jesus himself. And so this is why we preach the way we do on Sunday morning. More often than not, we just work our way through a book of the Bible, occasionally doing one-off sermons like this, occasionally doing thematic series, but always anchored in a text, because the word of the Lord matters. Because the Bible is not just a book. It's not just a spiritual guide. It's not just a place to go to find wisdom. God breathes out life through the word. That's why we need him to take his word and apply it to us. So in the hands of the Holy Spirit, God uses Scripture to challenge us, to transform us, to change us, but to ultimately lead us to Jesus again and again. And I've said all of this about the Word because sometimes I think we can forget this. Sometimes I think we just hit into an autopilot mode. We're so used to Scripture being read and hearing a sermon, we forget what we're trying to encounter here. But I'm also bringing this up because we can't be faithful to God 
apart from the word. We can't envision faithfulness if we don't know what's being asked of us. We can't walk in the ways of Jesus if we don't actually know his ways demonstrated throughout the Gospels and articulated throughout the New Testament. We're dependent upon God to reveal his ways to us through his word so we can do the hard work of walking with his spirit today. And indeed, this is what uh, God does time and time again. The reformer Martin Luther uh, wrote this about the Bible. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. I love that statement about the scriptures because I found it to be true in my own life and I know so many of you have found it to be true in yours. Scripture lays a hold of us and it propels us forward into acts of faithfulness. But the question is, do we listen? Do we actually let God grab a hold of us through his word? A friend of mine who's an atheist, once said this to me, and I wrote it down verbatim because it was just so good. You Christians think that God wrote the Bible, right? I said, that's a rather blunt way of stating it, but sure. He went on, here's what I don't understand. I ask Christians all the time if they read their Bible and they often say, no. Seriously, if I believed I had a book written by God, I would read the stuffing out of that book. He understands what we fail to grasp sometimes. That if we truly believed what we're supposed to believe about this book, why wouldn't we read it? Why wouldn't we devour it? Why wouldn't we inwardly digest it as we prayed in our collect earlier this morning? And this brings us back to Ezekiel. What keeps us from getting into the word so that we can apply it, so that it can lay a hold of us? Once again, this passage is looking at Ezekiel and what could be called the height of his prophetic career. People are finally paying attention. People are starting to react to them. him. They see that the prophecies are being fulfilled in their midst. But they actually come forward with impure motives. They don't come to be transformed by the word. They actually come for a show. They don't come to find out what it will mean to be faithful as God's people. They're looking for entertainment. Look closely at verses 31 and 32. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. Behold, you are like to them one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. God's people come to hear Ezekiel. They come to hear the word, but not really. They gawk at it, but they don't come under it. With lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their hearts are set on their gain. You know, this is a diagnosis. It says that their desires are actually skewed. Whatever they want from the word, it's for their own advantage. That's the gist of it. And so when we pray, take your word and apply it to our minds so we not grow shallow, apply it to our hearts that we not grow cold, we're recognizing that our minds and our hearts persistently drift away from the Lord. And that our desires are often a mess. 
that we can drift toward being self-serving. Like the people in Ezekiel, our minds can settle for shallowness or for numbing entertainment or for half-truths or for things that sound nice so long as they require nothing of us. What we really want, according to Ezekiel, with all our hearts and minds, is not usually God, but a world ordered around us. Easy, enjoyable, entertaining, and nice. That's what the people in Ezekiel want. And I think we could probably relate to that. And so in short, our hearts and our minds, they're a mess. And hopefully you can see that in yourself. When I was in the sixth grade, I was uh, the problem child. And I got into trouble like every other day. And I refused to respect the systems in place at my elementary school because systems were just constructs of the man. And I had to push against the power which usually led to detention. And I, I even liked my teacher, Mr. Kushner. He was great. He was kind. He was funny. He had this big smile and this grand sense of humor and a very nice car, a Pontiac Fiero. And this was before everyone discovered that their engines catch randomly on fire. But he had this car, and I remember thinking that was the coolest car I had ever seen in my life. And eventually, Mr. K realized that detention was making no difference on young Alistair's mind and heart. And so he had to start introducing tasks and trying different things to actually find something that came off like a consequence to me. You know, Mr. Stern, as a punishment, you'll clean the chalkboards. Fine, that's awesome. Great, thank you, that was fun. Okay, organize all the bookshelves. Great, I love this. But finally, he found the one task I did not want to do. Mr. Stern, go outside and pick up all the disgusting trash of your filthy peers. Now, I'm paraphrasing. But I refused. I had a tantrum. But he insisted, and he said that I couldn't go home until I finished the task. And, and this is when I said, I said, okay, I'll do your task. I'll pick up your filthy trash. But do you want to know what I'm going to do with that trash once I pick it all up? He said, what, young man? I said, going to dump it all over your car. You see, my little heart and mind were messed up. I'm in grade six, and I'm confronting authority with that sort of audacity. Now, he called my parents, and I got in trouble, and I had to pick up the garbage and put it in trash bags, and then I got grounded, but I turned out okay. You know, authority, it, it bothers us. It bothers us. We don't like to be told what to do whether we're a child or an adult. Just admit it. When we make announcements at the church, I have empirical proof. They do nothing. You don't like to be told what to do. Please register. No one registers. Please register. No one registers. It's tomorrow. Register. 57 people register. What is that? What is that? You guys are killing me. We don't like authority. We don't like authority, even little acts of authority like that. You see, even if we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, we want to avoid it because then it has authority. If we really believe the scriptures to be what we're claiming they are, then we actually have to submit to them. And this challenges us. We don't want to reorder our lives. We want to be in control. And so I think there's four ways we can approach the scriptures. There might be more, but let's consider four. We either avoid the word altogether, or we sit before the word, 
or we stand above the word, or we sit under the word. And so let's, let's look at each. You see, when we avoid the word, Christian or not, it's because we've constructed a view about the scriptures that justify not reading it. You see, you could say, I don't really need the Bible to know Jesus, or is it really trustworthy, or isn't it just another religious text? You see, whatever it is, you've come up with a reason to say, I don't actually have to dig into these words. The question is not whether your questions are valid. The question I have for you is, are you actually going to do anything about it? If you have these questions that help you justify not actually reading the scripture, well, why don't you go get those questions answered? There are plenty of resources. You see, we're just trying to find ways to avoid the word. So often we bring up those questions, but they're actually just defense mechanisms with no intention of actually answering them. Look, it's okay to have questions about whether this is inspired or not or how it was constructed. I get it. Those are big questions. They're important questions. So engage them. Seek after answers. Don't avoid the word, but press into getting those questions answered so that you can engage the word more meaningfully. That's just one way we avoid the word. Another way we avoid it is say, well, I can't understand it. It's too confusing. But why not press into the thousands upon thousands of resources that are available in this day and age to help you engage the word, to help you understand it? You're an intelligent group of people. Check out the Bible Project. It will help you. You see, the other thing we can do rather than avoid the word is we sit before the word. You know, and this is the posture I'd say the people of Ezekiel are taking. They're sitting before Ezekiel. They're listening to the word. They're hearing it, but they do so at arm's length. They want to be entertained. They want to hear a good story or a good joke. They do hear it, but they don't do what it says. You know, they might want to examine it, or they might want to question it, or they might want to challenge it, but heaven forbid, they actually have to apply it. See, they're going to sit before the word, and let the word entertain them, or let the word invoke conversation, but have no intention to let the word form them. But then we can stand above the word. And this is the posture in most of our culture at the moment. We stand above the word. We say, look, this book is flawed, it's questionable, it's archaic, it's regressive, we accept for caricatures of interpretation that have been made popular by mainstream uh, culture but aren't actually true of the scriptures. But we say, look, this word is beneath me. Like, I'm, I'm more advanced, I'm more cultured, I'm more intelligent than what this book actually teaches. And so we either cut out parts to help make the scriptures align more with our 21st century values, or we just ignore it altogether. But when we take this posture, when we stand above the word, true faithfulness never follows. Because you'll only be faithful so long as it aligns with what you've already determined to do for your life. And if you cut out God's voice from the word, he can never challenge you. And if you worship a God who can never challenge you, you have to ask yourself, am I actually worshiping God? If God always agrees with everything I think. But when we sit under the word, Yes, we make bold claims about what we believe this book to be. But we sit under it humbly, knowing that we can't live up to the standards it sets. We can't even understand all of it. But we recognize 
that we need God's word for our hearts and our minds and our feet and our hands and our mouths to be formed. We need his word and we need to come under his word because this is what God has given us for our formation. This is what God has chosen for us to discover Jesus Christ. And so we come to it willing to let go of our values and agendas. We come to it letting it be the director of our lives, not us being the director of it. And so we give the word authority because it's the God-inspired word. It is the written word that opens us up to the true living word. But our minds and our hearts, they don't make up the sum of our being. We have to address our feet. And, you know, God says twice in Ezekiel, verse 31 and 32, they hear what you say, but they will not do it. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. You see, it's absolutely of no value to us if the word goes in one ear and out the other. Jesus' brother James addresses this in his letter. Chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, hearing and acquiring more information isn't the point. It's not how we change. It's not how we learn to become faithful. You see, we can learn more and more to find out that our knowledge exceeds our obedience. We now know a ton of things about what we should do, but we don't actually do any of it. And so if you hear it and you don't do it, James goes as far as to say you're deceiving yourself. Back to 11-year-old Alistair. I knew what I should do. I had the intellectual capacity to understand that I should be nice to others. I shouldn't take things out of their desks. I shouldn't throw balls at people when they're not looking. I shouldn't do whatever it was that I was doing to get me in trouble. I should be obedient to my parents. I knew all of these things. It's not good to put your sister's toothbrush under your armpit. I comprehended this. But could you imagine if I simply stood before my parents and I recited to them all of the things I should do and my knowledge of all the things I should do, and then I even told them it in Greek, but then never actually did any of the things they were asking me to do. What does that mean? What value is that knowledge? It's of no value. I'm deceiving myself. You can know a lot about the word. You can know it in Hebrew and in Greek and Aramaic. You can be studied in the word. And yet, if your heart does not come under the word, all of that knowledge is of no value. I would rather someone who is ignorant in the text but does what it says than someone who can quote me scripture back and forth and never submits to it. Because that, those are the people God uses to change the world. And they're in this room. You see, James is asking us to check our hearts. I have to check my heart all the time. Teachers are going to be held to higher account. I wish that wasn't in Scripture, but it is. So when I get hassled for sometimes saying things that are uncomfortable, it's because I'm trying to be faithful to the world. word. I don't take any delight in challenging our community. I really don't. I'm not confrontational by nature. I would much rather keep to myself let you keep to your own problems and me keep to mine. That is not what God asks us as a community coming under his word. He says, let the word confront you. Let the word provoke you. Let the word challenge you. And it's okay if you fail to live up to it. Acknowledge that and ask for my spirit to apply the word to your mind and to your heart and to your feet. 
But we get all messed up when we start talking about doing, when we start talking about faithfulness, because someone's going to say, look, we're only saved by faith. It doesn't matter what we do. This is a classic Christian argument. And of course, we're saved by Jesus's faithfulness. What Jesus has done for us is how we are set right with God. But when we comprehend what Jesus has done for us and the profound love in which he has loved us, it moves our feet in faithfulness toward God. This is why James says, faith without works is dead. Because if the faith you profess doesn't actually move you toward the God you love, then your faith is in question. It's just an intellectual idea. It's not flowing out of the heart. See, faith, as my mentor used to say, is saying yes to God before we know what the question is. Faith is saying yes to God before we know what the question is. Because faith believes in the trustworthiness of God and the utter trustworthiness of God, that even if he asks something of us that does not make sense, that he's trustworthy, that he's good, that his steadfast love endures forever. So what then does faithfulness look like that involves our minds, hearts, and feet? Sometimes it means putting our feet in the right place and letting our hearts and minds follow. If we're always going to wait for us to feel right first, we're rarely going to be led into action. Sometimes we just have to get our bodies in the right place. I've seen this time and time again in our outward rhythms. Very rarely on the the get-go do people feel like it's making any difference. They don't understand, why do I need to be here? What, What is this doing? It seems so insignificant. And yet, if they keep showing up time and time again, over time, that action changes their hearts. And they start to see how a faithful presence over the long haul starts to transform people's lives by building meaningful relationships. And it begins to change them. I've seen this time and time again. It's similar with the scripture. When you start out, Sometimes having a discipline of reading the Bible every day isn't that fun. Like you get to Leviticus and you're like, okay, that was a good go. I'll wait till next year and try again. It takes discipline. It's not always fun. It's not always dependent on what we're feeling. But as we continue to open ourselves up through those rhythms time and time again, the Lord transforms us. So sometimes we have to get our heart in the right place. This is true with giving. The scriptures say, you know, God wants a cheerful giver. And if we wait to be cheerful about giving our money away, often we'll never give any away. It's similar to jogging. I've never just met someone who's naturally a joyful jogger. You develop that. You develop that kind of lunacy. And so it's the same with these disciplines, whether it is um, serving, whether it is reading the word, whether it is giving financially. Sometimes we do these actions and ask God to use those actions to form our hearts so that our hearts will follow with more pure motives. But it's true the other way around. That sometimes we just need to encounter Jesus. We need to truly encounter Jesus. And from that encounter, we're willing to do anything. I don't know about you. When's the last time you really felt like you encountered Jesus? Because the whole point of reading the Bible isn't just to read the Bible. It's to It's a means of grace. It is an avenue that's supposed to open you up to Jesus. Community is a means of grace. Gathering to worship is a means 
of grace. I hate to break it to you, but like of the things we could do on a Sunday morning, there is a lot more fun things we could do. But we do this not for the end. This is not the end. Our gathering is not the end. This is a means that opens us up to the presence of God time and time again. But when these things do open us up to the presence of God, when you can recall the last time you really felt an encounter of Jesus, think about how that changed your heart. Lord, I'll do whatever. I have to be honest. There's moments in planting a church where I've looked back on previous Alistair's faithfulness and been like, what were you thinking? Why did you do this to yourself? But it flowed out of encountering Jesus. And the Lord said, go plant a church in Vancouver. And I said, can I just go to Victoria? No, really, it's 80K. Like, what's the difference? Go to Vancouver. Okay, plant a church downtown. Yeah, but everyone's moving out to Delta. Can't I plant a church in Delta? It'll be easier in Delta. No, plant a church in UBC, Robson Square, two stories underground. Don't worry, people will find you. Be faithful. But here's the thing. If I just try to be faithful, it's too much. Because then I start feeling like, oh, God, am I doing enough? God, am I making you happy? God, am I, am I serving you? But when I encounter Jesus through his spirit, through his word, through prayer, through his saints, and then he asks me to do something, like, yes, whatever you want, Lord. Encounter can precede our faithfulness, and it's the most powerful way to keep our hearts and our feet moving in the direction of our Lord. And that's how we come under the word, when we trust that who we're encountering is none other than the God of the universe who is love itself. And so I don't want to downplay this. Our faithfulness really does matter. And we need to take seriously the command in Scripture. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. That is my great fear for all of us every Sunday. That we would hear something, we would think, yeah, I should do that. And then we don't ever do it. Because we never let it permeate into our being. And I've done this, and I know you've done it too. Here's the good news that I want you to take home. 2 Timothy 2.13. It's a trustworthy saying according to Paul. Trustworthy saying. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Your track record is insignificant compared to God's grace and love. You could walk out of this room and not do any of it. And Jesus Christ will remain faithful to you. He will continue to pursue you. He will continue to chase after you. He will continue to redeem you. He will continue to heal your heart, even if you're not aware of it. And over time, he'll help you catch up to speed, and you will see that he has remained faithful even when you were faithless. The pressure is not on you. It's on our Lord who has shown us that he is faithful all the way to a cross, all the way to resurrection, all the way to ascension, all the way to sending his spirit so that we might truly live as his people. So let's commit to this prayer together. Lord, we ask that you would take your word and apply it to our minds that we not grow shallow, apply it to our hearts that we not grow cold, and to our feet, that we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. In Jesus' name.